Okay, the scripture reading will be on the screen. We're reading from Luke chapter 19, beginning at the 11th verse. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minars. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your minna has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been a trustworthy, in a, you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minna has earned five more. His master answered, Take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his minner away from him and give it to the one who has ten minners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Let's, uh, let's dive in. I don't know if you've ever been in this experience. You've had this experience. You ever said that to yourself? I didn't sign up for this. A stormtrooper maybe, you know. They, their guns never shoot straight. That's, that's the big problem with stormtroopers. You know, they fire a million bullets and hit nothing uh, kind of thing. But I'm sure we've all actually said this to ourselves at some point. Yes? Yes? Okay. Uh, it's when our experiences and our expectations are vastly different. I've, uh, I've seen this, I've heard people say this uh, about marriage. Okay, they've stood before uh, a minister and they've actually said their vows. Okay, and if you remember the vows, like I don't know if you used an Anglican service and you had those vows, but very familiar to you probably. What do you say? For better, for worse. For richer, for 
poorer, for in sickness and in health, etc., etc., etc. But for most people, what they hear, uh, I would like to suggest, is uh, for better, for richer, and in health. Because our expectations frame how we then experience things. And mostly, we don't go into things expecting the downside. Now, this morning, uh, that's not Cody, uh, but we, we had a baptism. And a baptism is a symbol of joining God's church. And so it's really a valid thing to actually ask, you know, what has Cody signed up for? If you've been baptised, if you are a member of God's church, you're part of his people, what is it that you have signed up for? Because it is really helpful to have accurate expectations. Now, Jesus, thankfully, he's not into the bait and switch, okay? Jesus doesn't offer us something and then change it radically. Jesus is really up front that following him is not easy. He has no secrets. And this morning, the parable that we're looking at unpacks what it means to serve the king. Here's our points. So if you're taking notes, uh, you could jot those down. I think the QR code will also take you to a sermon outline. Before we dive into the parable, I want to give you a bit of, uh, a bit of Palestinian history. Uh, have we got any Palestinian historians this morning? Good, so no one's going to be able to correct my mistakes. Uh, in 4 BC, a man by the name of uh, Archelaus uh, left Judea for Rome. His father, Herod the Great, had just died in the middle of a significant religious confrontation. Herod thought it would be a really good idea to suck up to the Romans. And so he had put a Roman eagle, the symbol of military might and Roman imperial power, above the gateway to the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, how to pick a fight with the religious community. Okay, Herod has done this. And uh, some young men led by uh, some of the teachers of the law, they went in there with axes and they smashed this thing to bits. And in reprisal, Herod burnt 40 of them to death. And then he dropped dead. And his son, Archelaus, comes into power. And he's got to clean up the mess. So what does he do? He sends his army into the temple and kills 3,000 and cancels the Passover. Okay. And then he gets on a boat and he heads off to see this man, Caesar Augustus, so that he might be formally declared to be the king of Judea. But his subjects hated him, understandably, you might say. And they sent a delegation along saying, we do not want this man to be king over us. Is this sounding familiar? Archelaus did come back and he was appointed to be king over part of his father's kingdom. He split it with his brothers. Uh, And so one was over Judea, one was over Galilee in the north and another was over another part uh, somewhere else. Uh, But what I'm trying to point out here is Jesus is crafting a story using recent historical events. And these were very deeply felt events amongst the community to which Jesus was speaking. He's in a town called Jericho, which is literally 10 kilometres 
from where these events happened. And he's only talking about 30 odd years. So it's like something happened in the early 90s. It's that kind of time frame. And memories are long. But Jesus draws on this historical event to tell us something about what it means to live for him in the here and the now. Jesus wants to shape their expectations. And he knows that at the time he's walking through Jericho, uh, he knows that they've got it wrong. And Luke records that for us in verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. And these things are really helpful when Luke puts these little editorial notes in here. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Because the Jewish people had been waiting for God's king, God's Christ or Messiah to turn up. And Jerusalem was David's city and the Messiah was from the line of King David. And so there we have Jesus who they're starting to see, is he the Christ? And he's processing up to David's city and they're looking for these expectations that maybe it's now, maybe God's going to come in and set everything straight and sort us out and kick the Romans out and put us on top again. And Jesus wants to shape their expectations. He's got four things that he wants to tell us. He wants to, first of all, tell us about our king. He says in his parable, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. What's Jesus saying? The king is going to go away and he's going to come back. Now, we're not surprised by this, but they expected that Jesus was going to bring in God's kingdom then, that the rain was going to start in maybe just a few days. But Jesus says he is going to go to a distant country and then return. And if you read about the prophecies in Daniel 7, they speak of the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. That that title that Jesus claimed, one like a Son of Man, going to the Father and receiving all authority and power. Jesus doesn't get on a boat. What's the trip he takes? It's from the cross through his death, his resurrection and ascension. And he's telling them that the king is going to go away, but he is going to come back. And he's reassuring them, this is the way it's meant to be. They thought it was going to be this great, positive, them on top future. But Jesus is actually saying, when I go, this is the way God planned it. The king is going to return, but not straight away. Words of comfort, words of reassurance. The king is going to return, but not straight away. So he shaped those views. Now he's telling us, well, what is our job? What are we to do in the meantime? Verse 13. So he calls 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minutes. 
Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, it's not probably a word that we use of ourselves very much, but the Bible makes us clear that if we are disciples of Jesus, another way it speaks of us is we are servants or perhaps even slaves of the king. And here, he's not talking about those 12 men that he had called to be his disciples in that first instance, because he doesn't use the number 12, he uses 10. And so I think he's saying he's speaking to everyone who is a follower of Jesus, everyone who is a servant of God's king. And he tells them, you've got a job to do. Your job is to conduct my business until I return. You are to do this as my representatives. You are my servants after all. And you are to do it with the resources that I provide. Now, we may not be familiar with what a minna was, uh, but let me give you a little bit of a history lesson. One minna was equivalent to about 100 days wages. So if you work about a, uh, an average income of, you know, the average Australian wage, I think, or the minimum Australian wage is about uh, 50 grand, roughly that amount. You're talking about twelve dollars to $15,000. So you're not talking extraordinary wealth, but you're talking about not insignificant. If you go to work tomorrow, if you're a worker, uh, and your boss says, I've decided to give you a bonus, here's fifteen grand in the bank. None of us are going to turn up our nose at that, are we? No, given the fact that you're my employer. Um, <laughs> go for it, okay. I'd like to see what my reaction might be. Let, let's test that. Um, or maybe if you could be nice to Matt, that's okay. Okay, but the point here is Jesus is saying, it's not sit down and watch Netflix until he comes back. It's not go on a holiday and just chill out and forget about him because he's not around He says, you are my servants and I have a task for you and your task, here's some money, put it to work until I come back. Now, if you're familiar with Jesus's parables, parables are kind of symbolic stories and the people and the things in it represent things. And so it's no surprise to us, the king is Jesus. Yes, the servants are those who follow him. Okay. What is the minor? What does the money represent? And people tie themselves in knots about this one, can I say? Is it the gospel? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it, um, you know, the gifts that he has given us? Is it opportunities? Is it, is it, is it too complicated? What is it? It is what they need to do the task that he has given them. He wants them to conduct business and he gives them the resources that they need. He wants us to go about his business and he gives us the resources that we need. Is it the gospel? Yes. Is it the spirit? Yes. Is it the opportunities that we have? Yes. Is it the hope that we have? Yes. Is it the gifts that we have? Yes. It is simply all that we need to be faithful. The servants weren't going to look out when the master had gone away on the ship and gone, oh, but he didn't give us enough or he didn't give us what we needed. He gave them exactly what they needed to do the task in front of them. And what was that task? It was to live as the king's servants in his absence. To pursue his interests. What does that look like for us? 
When you look in Luke's gospel, you'll see that what is Jesus about? What does our king do? Our king calls people and our king blesses people. He calls people to put their trust in him. He announces the kingdom. He teaches about the kingdom and he teaches about how people can be set right with God. We call this evangelism. And the servants, I think it's fair to say, we are to continue to do what the king is doing. But for some, they go, that's everything. Okay, that's my task. My job is to be an evangelist. Yes, it is. But what else did Jesus do? Jesus reached out to those on the edges. He blessed those whose society saw as cursed. He showed compassion. He called his followers to do likewise. Remember what he called the rich man to do? He says, sell everything and give to the poor. And if you read through Luke's gospel again and again and again, the poor are in focus. God calls us not just to proclaim the kingdom, but to embody the kingdom. To be those who speak of his grace, but then show that grace to others. Who promise his blessing through the gospel of Christ, and then in his name, bless others. As Christians, I don't believe as servants of the king, we are free to make up what it is that we would like to do. Uh, it's funny, I had uh, someone who's um, really concerned about such things the other day. It hasn't bugged me for the last 14 years. He said to me, Cameron, uh, I was at you know, uh, Lucy's second birthday party and uh, this two-year-old came up. No, an old friend from my last church came up and, uh, and Nick's a bit of a boffin like this. He's like, Cameron, have you got a job description? And I said, no, no, I've never had a job description, actually. Um, I just make up what I want to do, and then I do it. Uh, and the great thing about not having a job description is you can't hold me accountable for anything. Can I just say the leadership team do hold me accountable, and I'm quite happy to be. But we as God's servants, we don't have the, capa- we don't have the, the opportunity, the freedom, to just say, oh, this is what I think I should be doing. We go to God's word, we look at God's king. What does he do? What does he call us to do? We're accountable. So we have a task. We have a king who is absent but is returning. What else does Jesus want us to know? He wants to frame our situation for us. And there it is in verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Literally, this says, we don't want this one, this thing. They've dropped the man out of the original. So you can almost put dot, 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 insert expletive here. Uh, They hate this guy's guts. And Jesus, Jesus uses Archelaus, who is a despised Jewish historical figure. This man sent sent the army into the temple and killed 3,000 people, cancelled the Passover. That's worse than cancelling Christmas. He cancelled the Passover. He killed 3,000 faithful Israelites for objecting to an idol over the temple gates. They hate him. And Jesus draws a parallel between what 
the people thought of Archelaus and himself and his subjects. We represent a hated king, a king who was rejected by the people of his time. They stood before Pilate and they said, we have no king but Caesar. What shall I do with this Jesus, king of the Jews? Crucify him. Crucify him. But it's not just then. It's not just that first century rejection. I want to read to you a little bit about from a book. It's a ex- bit of an extended quote, so I haven't put it up. This is a good book. Uh, I wanted to go and buy multiple copies and make them available down the back, but it hadn't yet hit Kurong, so it's only really recent. Let me read to you by um, Stephen McAlpine, Being the Bad Guys. He says, Only a few generations, Christianity was the good guy, the solution to what was bad. Rather than being on the wrong side of the law, we were the law. Christian morality was assumed and passed mainly unchallenged. The cultural, legal and political power structures affirmed Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, just one option amongst many, a voice to be considered, but not to be followed unquestionably. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. Now, most of us think we still live in that world. Most Christian books, sermons, podcasts assume we do. In many ways, we've only just worked out how to live well as one of the guys. But the problem is that we are not where we are. That is not where we are now. The tide has shifted further. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. It is no longer an option. It's the problem. The cultural, political and legal guns that Christianity once held are now trained on us and it's happened quickly. We are on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. If this were a Western, we would be the guys wearing black hats whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. And it's come as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it. And we don't feel like we deserve it. But now we are the bad guys. I don't know if you resonate with that. But if you don't, go and find your non-Christian friends, your family, your workmates. And have a conversation on one of a number of topics that could include sexuality and gender. A whole range of things. And just see the reaction you get. See what's out there. And realise that the world has shifted a long way. And Jesus is saying to us that we are called to serve him as his servants, doing his business amongst a community, amongst a society that says, we don't want this man to be king over us. It's not easy. It's not easy. Jesus warned us. That's not the one I wanted. I wanted that one. He says this to his disciples 2,000 years ago. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. 
That is why the world hates you. As Christians, we have just come out of a period that we think of as normal, but history shows us is massively abnormal. Where to be a Christian was to get the thumbs up from our culture. In most times and most places, that has not been the case. And that is what Jesus is teaching us. He is shaping our expectations around our situation. And what's our fourth expectation? He's shaping our expectations around the future. Because our king is returning and there is going to be an accounting. He was made king, however, and returned. And I've just lost my screen. Ethan, something has happened. Can you find it back? Oh, it's a good thing you're all sitting two metres away from each other or something. Something like that anyway. Okay. Um, isn't it wonderful? I didn't bring my Bible up here. Can you skip, skip to the next one? And I'm going to read it off the screen. He was made king, however, and returned home. He sent for his servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Next slide. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. And his master answered, You take charge of five cities. Jesus is teaching that there is going to be an accounting. That he is going to call us in and ask, How have you gone in my business? And he commends his servants, well done, my good servant. And he rewards them with extraordinary responsibility. They were playing with twelve dollars to $15,000 and all of a sudden they've got 10 cities, five cities. Extra- extravagance, extravagant generosity. But I want to ask this morning, what is it that Jesus is actually or what is it that the king is rewarding? Is it their fruitfulness? Or is it their faithfulness? Is he saying to them, because you've been really clever and you've made a profit, therefore I'm going to reward you? Or is he actually commending something else? What does he actually... I'm going to see if I can bring this back. Actually, Karen, can you bring me my Bible? It's on the seat in front of you. Technology is great until it's not, isn't it? It's like when your dishwasher breaks down. You've got to unpack it, you know. You've got to do all the dishes by hand. It's really painful. Okay. Remember what that was like? Dishes. Love them. Okay. Okay. I would like to suggest that what the king is rewarding is not their fruitfulness, but their faithfulness. What does he actually commend them for being? Because you have been trustworthy or faithful, depending on which translation you've got. He doesn't say because you've been cunning and crafting and you've been a really good businessman. He says because you've been trustworthy, you've done what I've asked you to do. And look at the language that the servants use there in verse 18 and also in verse 20. Uh, No, verse 16 and verse 18. They don't come in and say, look, master, I've been really clever. Look at the language. He says, your minna has earned 10 more. That's a really odd way of saying it, isn't it? 
because they've been conducting business, but they're actually saying that, that the power to conduct business is actually and generate the profit has not come from them. Your mina has made 10 more. It's almost like they deployed it and it just did its stuff. Okay? It's almost an organic kind of image that it kind of just reproduced itself. And I think this is what Jesus is drawing out. Because the way that the servants speak and what they're commended for shows that this is, this is almost inevitable. Almost what you need to do is actually uh, put, just put it out there. Be prepared to put out, uh, serve God faithfully with what he's given you and the growth will come. So I think he's actually rewarding not how clever they've been, but that the fact that they had been prepared to represent him in the here and the now. And then another servant came, Luke 20, uh, Luke 19, 20. Another servant came in and said, Sir, here's your minute. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you were a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. You reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have it collected with interest? This man, uh, I think, he is uncertain whether his king's coming back. And so he's kind of hedged his bets. I don't want to lose it. So I'm going to keep it here. I'm not going to spend it on something else, but I'm not going to do what he's asked me to do because that would put me in the firing line. So he's hedging his bets. He's not wanting to risk anything for his king. And his excuse is pretty lame. When the king exposes it, there's an option that was pretty painless to go to the money lenders, to give the money across and say, put this to work. And the king would have collected his money with interest. The king condemns this servant, condemns him as wicked. The minor, the minor that he has is taken away from him. He says to those standing by, take it away from him and give it to the one who has ten. He loses it. And we're left, is this man, if we're thinking, is this, if we are the servants, is this man saved? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us. What's the message, though? Don't go there. Don't go there. I was thinking about this, and hopefully you'll excuse the fairly crass illustration. It's kind of like someone who's married saying, how unfaithful can I be before he or she will divorce me? Can I just say, if you've ever asked yourself that question, it's the wrong question to ask. And that's the servant. The servant is trying, we're left in this situation, can I hide this away? And Jesus is saying, don't. Put it into play. It will bear fruit. And you will, the king will come back and he will commend those who have done this. And then we have, in verse 27, probably one of the most savage images that you can find. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. 
It's an image that is consistent with Archelaus and it's designed to shock us. Even more so, kill is quite a gentle term. Ethan, can we have the next slide? This is what the, the, the Greek actually says, to slaughter either animals or purpose, persons. In the context referring to people, the implication is of violence and mercilessness. It is a savage word. Are we comfortable with Jesus, the king, using such a word to talk about the future, the judgment? And can I say, eternity under God's judgment is worse. There is no neutral ground. You are his servants or you are under his judgment. His servants are called to serve. And here Jesus warns. He says, this is coming. This will happen when the king comes back. There will be a reckoning. So if you're this morning, you're here and you aren't serving the king. Hear this. Let me just go to our last point, serving the king. Let me say, if this morning you're not a Christian person, can I ask you, make sure that the Christianity you reject, the Jesus you reject, is the real Jesus, the real Christianity. How would you know? Well, I went and I put some of these down the back. This is Luke's Gospel. So one of the 66 books in the Bible, this is a story, an account of Jesus's life that we've been working through here. If you've never read a gospel, if you sort of go, nah, Jesus, don't want anything to do with him. I know some dodgy Christians. Well, unfortunately, there's a few of them around. But do you know the real Jesus? Grab this. It'll take you about an hour to read this afternoon. Sit out, get your cup of coffee. Read the Gospel of Luke. Check the facts. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this one. But why would you serve him? Do you serve him just out of fear that if I don't, he will get me? No. And if you talk to those around you who serve him, we don't serve out of fear, although Jesus is an awesome figure. We serve him out of love because he has served us. He went to the cross. He laid down his life for us. This Jesus is not a tyrant. He is the victorious king, but he is also the suffering servant. And he did this for us. And when you see that this king loves you that much, to give everything you have in his service is nothing. Isaac Watts wrote a hymn, uh, When I survey the wondrous cross, and the last verse, were the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. When we see the love of this king for us. He's no Archelaus. He uses his power to serve and to bless. Now, for those of us who are his servants,
Ask yourself, where do you line up? Are you with the first two? Are you busy with the king's work? Are you representing him amongst your community? Are you living amongst a world that will not recognize him, but doing his business for his glory? Or do we find that once we walk away from Sunday and maybe growth group and a few other times, when we're amongst our non-Christian workmates and they say, oh, what do you do on the weekend? Oh, a great barbecue on Saturday and there's a great game on Sunday afternoon. We don't really want to mention I went to church. You know, we don't really want to identify ourselves as one of the kings or even one of the king's servants or speak in his name. Do we look to bless others, to serve others as he has served us? Ask yourself, what are you doing with what the king has entrusted to you? Why would you hide it? Why would you be the third one, you know, with your your hanky and you've scrunched it up in your pocket? A couple of reasons. Maybe we don't believe he'll return. Maybe not in our heart of hearts. You know, he didn't return yesterday, he hasn't returned yet today, so he's not going to return tomorrow. But let me say, Jesus rose and he ascended and he will return. Maybe you don't take him seriously. Maybe you say, oh no, Cameron, you you keep on talking about we're saved by grace. We're not saved by our personal effort. The servants aren't saved because they're faithful. True. But the servants who are saved are faithful. The servants who have seen their master and his grace and his generosity and his love, they cannot but help serve them, serve him. Grace is never an excuse. Grace is the best motivation. Maybe we're afraid of what they will say about us. But why do we care? Because at the end, on that last day, whose opinion matters? You know, your colleague at work might think you're rubbish. Your family might actually turn away from you. But at the end of the day, it is the king on his throne. Well done, my faithful servant. They are the words you want to hear. And maybe you are serving him faithfully. Maybe you need to hear these words from John 16. Ethan, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He will return. Our job is not to be popular, to have the world think we're fantastic. Our job is to serve the king, to be, as Stephen McAlpine says, the best bad guy you can be, to serve him with joy, to use what he has given us, everything he has given us, to do his business. And the promise is, we will bear fruit for his glory. And when he comes back, he will share that glory with us. Let's pray. Father, this is a a hard word. It challenges us. It asks us where our hearts are at. 
What do we love? Your praise, your son's praise, or the praise of the world? Do we live for ourselves? Do we live for you? Father, we do pray that we would see the love that you have given us in Christ, the victory that he won for us, and that we would take heart. Resting in his victory, we would live for him, knowing that he will return. And in his name, we will reign with him. We pray this in Christ's most precious name. Amen.